0: Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the show where we ask the big questions about our political institutions and how they might be better, how we might fix them. And we sometimes have answers and sometimes just have more questions. So today's a day in which I have a lot of questions because I have no idea how we're gonna make an election go off in November. And I wanna know what the heck happened In Wisconsin this week, we're recording on Thursday, April 9th, two days after Wisconsin decided to hold its primary in the midst of a pandemic with lots of back and forth between the legislature and the governor and the courts and just total confusion. And fortunately, I have two of the smartest people I know to talk about this with me. And this is another episode of Politics in Question. So I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
1: I'm Julia Azari, associate professor at Marquette University.
0: And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So big question for today is how are we going to vote in the midst of a pandemic? And is election day going to become election month? Uh, should it? What, what What do you all think? Let's just let's just take the temperature here for a few minutes.
1: Well, Taking the temperature has now become a little loaded, has it not? Um,
0: Oh, yeah. Everything. Yeah. We can't we can't say going viral anymore. Well, it's our it's, it's these... our protocol. We always take the temperature.
1: We do. We do. We, yes. we, we read the room. So uh, reading the room, I think, is yeah. still OK. Um, so let me tell you what my sort of pre-coronavirus uh, position was on these sorts of reforms like vote by mail and things like that, which is that I have no problem with them. Um, I think they're they're great. Um, but my sense is that they are like a lot of reforms that we talk about. I mean, my position on reforms is generally great. Try that, but it's probably not going to solve a lot of the underlying issues. Um, in this case with access to the, to the ballot box and specifically, um, inequity in terms of voter turnout. So that again is, that is my like March 8th, 2020 position, um, on vote by mail. I am, I am all for uh, workarounds as we approach November to try and and make this election both both safe and possible, and that's made me more open, I think, to um, creative reform than maybe I normally would be.
0: James,
2: uh, I think I, I I think I share that view. Although I will say I'm not a big fan of workarounds. I don't think workarounds ever actually work. They typically only make things worse. And I also think that we typically overstate in this crisis i think the need or the 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 danger of of not implementing certain policy prescriptions immediately and i guess we can get into that but with that being said i am generally uh, a big fan of making it as easy to vote as possible i think in general i approach politics uh, in reform uh, proposals in politics, as I've said in the past, as whatever makes it easier to participate in politics, count me in. I'm a supporter. I think it's a good thing. We need more political participation. We need more political activity, both within elections and between elections than we currently have. So sure, count me in. I'm a supporter.
0: Yeah, I think my position is uh, similar to Julia's on voting by mail, that you know, having digested a lot of the political science literature on this, it seems like all of these reforms, voting by mail, early voting, you know, have probably had marginal effects at best on turnout uh, and seem to have some disparities in the groups that they help versus hurt that particularly vote by mail has generally helped. Uh, sort of older, more affluent, more habitual voters, uh, more than less affluent, less habitual voters. Uh, so it you know there are some potential inequalities in in who who is able to participate. And one of the things that I've just been thinking a lot about in the last few weeks, as I've really tried to dig in and understand how these different reforms might play out over the next few months, is the the difficulty of implementing them and the way in which there are just a lot of decisions, uh, in the implementation that, that could really have profound effects for whose votes get counted and just the legitimacy of the count in November. And so, you know, I, I think generally the more people vote, the better, um, you know, and I, so I'm in favor of, of what makes it possible for people to vote. I also, you know, I've been trying to think about what the long-term consequences of these reforms would be, uh, that I think there probably once a lot of states move to earlier voting and vote by mail if they do, that that becomes kind of a permanent thing. Uh, and that election day becomes election month. And that kind of changes the way elections operate. So I hope we can dig into those questions. But I think... Uh, uh, the first thing to dig into is just what the heck happened in Wisconsin, where uh, where Julia is. So take us through this this crazy crazy saga. And Julia, before you jump into that, I, I just want to, for our listeners, try to um,
2: kind of frame it a little bit by saying that we really have two issues here. One is the question, the safety, the feasibility, uh, the logistical um, aspects of voting during a pandemic. And the other one is, the what are the implications of voting by mail in terms of turnout, in terms of the effect on the broader polity and the broader political system? And, and they are intimately related, but I think Lee's right. We should probably start with the, the pandemic aspects, the public health aspects, and what happened in Wisconsin first to help us kind of better understand the situation and the need for it right now. And then we can kind of jump into these broader Kind of political science-y type questions about voting by mail and voting reform more generally.
1: Yeah, so that's a great frame, and I'll, I'll start by let me give just the sort of brief bit of context about Wisconsin, which is that high stakes, highly polarized, highly competitive politics have been have characterized the state for about a decade now. Um, and as of two thousand nineteen, we've got a Republican-controlled state legislature and a Democratic governor and wisconsin also has a kind of long progressive capital p progressive um tradition and uh pretty you know some fairly pro voter laws when i moved here in 2007 i was pretty excited about same day registration um think we tend to be on the higher end of turnout on presidential elections so you know, that kind of thing exists. And there's that tradition and typical in a typical election, um, early voting stretches out for several weeks. And there's a number of early voting locations um, where you can go and cast a ballot uh, prior to election day. And, you know, that that has kind of been a political football over the last couple of years about where those locations are. And specifically, um, does, you know, one of the questions that's been raised by Republicans the legislature is does Milwaukee have too many milwaukee of course is the the largest city in the state um the most diverse place in the state and a heavy concentration of democratic voters so this is really so this is a very um complicated and politically tense context in which we move into this very challenging election situation the other thing to know, and if you're following this, you've likely seen this in, in the press, but I just really want to emphasize one of the things that's going on is that this is a pres- This was a presidential primary we had on Tuesday, but it was also a technically nonpartisan general election for a state Supreme Court seat, as well as a couple of uh, local offices and referenda in Milwaukee. So that, for example, there was a race for the Milwaukee County Executive here in, in Milwaukee. Um... And then the the state supreme court race is probably the race that, well, again, technically nonpartisan, mapped um, neatly onto national partisan divisions. With, for example, President Trump um, endorsing Dan Kelly for um, for that office over Jill Karofsky. So that's the that's the context of going into this this situation on Tuesday. Then things really, you know, so the wheels really come off there. First, what happened was. About a month ago, when when other states started rescheduling their primaries, there emerged a fight here in Wisconsin about whether to do that. And notably, the governor, Tony Evers, again, this, this is a recently elected Democrat, did not move quickly on this, um, did not move quickly on this at all. And so our election was scheduled as normal up until a couple days beforehand. But anticipating what all of this means, and also as polling places throughout the state began to close, people, as they ran out of poll workers, um, and this, of course, was notably a problem in in Milwaukee, people started requesting absentee ballots. So our our really intrepid listeners will remember that last year, uh, we kicked off the show, our very first episode of the show, with, with James signing my absentee ballot, uh from Wisconsin while well, I was I was in Washington DC last semester normally I, I would I would vote in person sometimes early but often you know often the day of my uh my polling place is a uh, an elementary school about a half a block from my house so I typically drive home from work and then walk over there um but I requested an absentee ballot because of the the concern about standing in line at the polls and I was not alone so number one, our election administration system got overwhelmed, which meant that some people didn't receive ballots. I have a number of, of friends and colleagues who haven't still haven't received ballots they requested in March. Um, I know at least one person who received a ballot that was marked had an error, was marked for the wrong ward. So already this is kind of a mess. Um, and then the governor issued an order can- on Monday canceling the, um, the in-person election, which was then invalidated by the state supreme court so that's kind of that's what happened so for for most of the the time that wisconsinites have been preparing to go to the polls it's been in the context of anticipating that there would be some kind of in-person election Then the governor acted on that very late and canceled it through an order that he had initially said he didn't have the authority to to do and then the state supreme court invalidated that meaning that there would be an in-person election in the midst of all of this there had been a slight change in the rules in absentee ballots, which is that they had to be postmarked by the date of the election and not received. Um, there had been an extension till, uh, till April 13th that uh, ballots could be postmarked up until April 13th, which gave a little bit of a cushion to people who hadn't received their ballots in time. But the uh, Monday night, the U.S. Supreme Court um, invalidated that. So are you lost yet? Because Uh,
0: (laughs) this is this is this is a welter of uh, of confusion here. So and but this is a, a great summary because you've really taken us through all the decision points that go into administering a vote by mail system. When are you going to make the cutoff for ballots? Is it the day of the election? Do they have to be postmarked the day of the election? Do they have to arrive the day of the election? What happens if people get ballots that are the wrong ballots? What happens if people don't fill out their don't have a signature witness or their signature doesn't match perfectly? Do you have enough people in place to handle this? Uh, right. to count all the ballots, can voters keep track of whether their ballots actually were accepted or not? What happens if you make a mistake? Uh, you know, w- what are the rules here, right? There, there are a lot of dis- policy decisions to make. And also it, you've taken us through this whole partisan politics that the, the governor acted slowly. Then you have a divided legislature with a democratic governor and, uh, and a Republican legislature. And it seems like all of this, uh, has gotten really caught up in partisan politics. so I, I, th- this is like a, a tangle here so help us help us pull on these threads a little bit. you you're, you're like you're into knitting so uh, there's like some thread <laughs> metaphor here.
1: Yeah, there's always a thread metaphor. yeah I mean the other two things I want to emphasize here that we're confused I really I feel like I'm trying I'm simplifying it, but as I'm talking about it, it's like oh my god, there's so many right there's so many as Lee said implementation decisions that go into this kind of thing. And so I want to emphasize that in this case, there are, as Lee also pointed out, there are partisan politics. There are challenges that have to do with doing this on the fly as, you know, as the whole country, those of us, I guess, who are fortunate enough to do white collar jobs that we do at home are reconfiguring how we do that. This is the same thing with elections, right? We're um, we're doing, we're reconfiguring all of these different things, including the administration. So there are a couple of things, and I've got a piece here from the the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that does a good job explaining that. i will we'll pop in our show notes. But one of the requirements in Wisconsin is that you, you uh, follow the state's voter ID law via the internet, so you have to upload um, an ID I did all of this last year when I was in D.C., but of course, I had plenty of, you know, warning and time to figure that out. And you have to have a, a signature. You have to have a witness. And so this become this, I think, is a is a is a it is a controversial requirement. It is not an onerous requirement, but it, it, it does put some burden on people who may live alone in a pandemic. It really becomes a challenge. I know I was. I, I was sort of following this on Twitter and with some friends who live alone and they, you know, one of them had a their upstairs neighbor in their apartment sign it. I definitely saw at least one person on Twitter who had the person who uh, delivered his takeout sign the ballot. And the other thing that becomes challenging in a social distancing pandemic situation is that it's much harder for the election commission to get back to people who haven't filled out their their ballots correctly, who lack a signature, who don't meet the ID requirement, who have made a, a balloting mistake. And we did read in one of so one of um, the studies I read in preparation for this noted that it's one thing, you know, vote by mail is one thing, but who actually returns their ballot when they order one? And then what happens to those ballots once they're turned in? And there was this study by uh, Michael Alvarez, Thad Hall, and Betsy Sinclair that finds in a study of LA County that that people who had their their ballots challenged once they arrived were more likely to be overseas. They were more likely to be non non um, you know non English. It was a non English speaking ballot. More likely to be in the military. So it was like it was very systematic whose ballots came in with, um, with problems that then allowed them to be, to be challenged. It didn't conform to the rules. There are all these little technical rules. And a lot of those become very important when you were talking about, about absentee balloting. So the, the bottom line for me about the Wisconsin election, other than this becomes a huge political football, is that we need to invest in some election infrastructure. You know, we, like we need a lot more people working in these offices, we need to figure out a way for them to do so safely, and I don't, and I guess, necessarily need to be working in a physical office, but there needs to be infrastructure for people to do this in a way that's, that allows them to stay healthy, but people working in elections, that, you know, we need those.
0: So you're saying we need a, a, an election infrastructure week? Well,
1: but we need an election infrastructure week.
0: There's a... Yes, all right, James. But... To clarify
2: this and to simplify this for our listeners and for people who are concerned about the state of elections and our election infrastructure, is what the, there are two questions. One, what are the current rules? And then two, how do we administer those rules? And it seems to me, at least, in, in reading the the Supreme Court decision, the application for a stay, uh, for the district court decision to extend the uh, um, you know the, the period in which absentee ballots can be cast during this election, to take just one example, uh, this really centers on. Who makes the rules for Wisconsin elections? And that's the Wisconsin state legislature, I would imagine. And then what are those rules? And how can we, given the those rules, implement them to the best of our ability? And then, second, if they need to be changed, how can we, what should they and be changed to? What ought they to be? And I think the problem right now, a lot of the confusion, at least as I see it, is that we expect a lot of the people who are administering elections, who are grappling with the rules that they have, that we're asking them to say to also overcome the imperfections of those rules. And in reality, that's not what, you, I don't think that's appropriate. It seems to me that the legislatures are the ones who make these decisions. And we ought to be, I think, a little bit clearer in calling on those legislatures to do so. And I get that that may be difficult in time-limited situations where, you know, we have a pandemic and then there's an election on next Tuesday. But, but that still doesn't, I think, obviate the need to, to
0: kind of cast it in those terms. So, I mean, one of the things that I think we have to, to grapple with here, well, actually, there's, there's two things that we need to grapple with here. One is the partisan calculus uh, about who is going to benefit from early voting, vote by mail, and then there's the the sort of fractured nature of election administration in the United States, in which states set their own rules, and then some states, uh, or most states, it's a lot of local jurisdictions that do their own electoral administration. So I think we should tackle the partisan question first. Uh, and if you've been following the news, you've seen that in the last, the last few weeks Trump has been very opposed to mail-in voting. In fact, he, he wrote on Twitter recently that uh, Republicans should fight very hard when it comes to statewide mail-in voting. Democrats are clamoring for it. Tremendous potential for voter fraud and for whatever reason doesn't work out well for Republicans. So there's this idea and I think it's you, you see it in the state parties too uh, as well as at the the national level that somehow Republicans would be hurt by mail in voting. So now, having read the political science literature, again, I, I it seems like over and over again the uh, studies say there there's no real partisan impact. Uh, if anything, it seems that actually probably helps Republican voters who tend to be older uh and more and and those are the voters who who actually benefit most. And it certainly seems like they would benefit most in, in a pandemic situation, because they'd be probably most at risk of going to the polls. Uh, but uh, w- what are, are 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 is Trump picking up something that the political scientists are missing here? Well, I th- or should he just read the political science? Well, I think I think Republicans are wrong
2: on their in their opposition to making it easier to vote. And, and in, in general, right, there are there, to the extent that there are concerns about voter fraud, then they, you know, we should figure out a way to address those without sacrificing the ability to make it easier for people to vote. But one thing but before I kind of kick it over to Julia to answer your question, I think more specifically, is that in general, though, any election regime that we have, any rules that we have are going to be partisan. Whenever you change the rules about how we conduct our elections, you're going to tilt the playing field one way or the other. And that's a given. We cannot get away from that. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to and we shouldn't aspire to. But I think it's really important to understand that. And, and both parties are going to try to structure elections in the way in which we administer them to advantage them. Um, and I think we ought to, in general, try to uh, transcend that that partisan struggle, recognizing it and saying, "Look, at the end of the day, what we need to do is make it easiest possible for people to participate in politics, and then judge the party's efforts to tilt the playing field one way or the other based on that alone." Julia.
1: Yeah. So, I this is a really difficult. This is a really difficult problem um, because. In the past, I mean, put this sort of in context of uh, voting struggles in the past, just not to say that kicking everything up to the national level was flawless, it wasn't, but the way that if we want to think about this as a protection of voting rights issue, the way that those issues have been addressed has been to nationalize certain voting rules, right? And this goes back a long time. goes back to the 15th amendment and the 19th amendment um making rules that that say okay states you can you can do what you want but you can't disenfranchise people on the basis of race you can't disenfranchise people on the basis of sex then um allowing people um over 18 to vote so you've got you've got a range of of these sorts of decisions and you have the voting rights act, which creates a little bit at least of, of infrastructure. I'm just going to use that word a lot. And that's just going to be how life rolls today. Um, it, you know, it, It's it infrastructure enforcement. It's infrastructure week. Um, it, it creates a, a mechanism for enforcement. And then that's of course gutted in 2013 by the Shelby v. Holder decision. But at each stage of this sort of, development of voting rights it has been a kind of a a kind of situation where bringing national politics in has been an imperfect but but useful effort to equalize access access to the ballot box Um, these of course are different kinds of problems than the administration issues that we're that we're talking about but i think the same political dynamics around who who people think should be allowed to vote and who wants to vote and who is seeking to vote are, are similar. And I think that's that's a tricky problem, because right now, I guess the point I'm getting to is that with with national politics being so deeply polarized and with specifically with Trump in the White House, who likes to weigh in on these kinds of fights, you know, kicking things up to the national level does not seem like a super viable solution. I mean, I think even though it's a problematic solution, it probably is the only one right, the only possibility for having this be better is having some kind of national legislation that creates certain rules that states have to follow, um, and possibly that creates actual financial support for national vote by mail. But I guess my concern is that the discourse nationally and also locally, and particularly in places like Wisconsin, where you have a majority minority city and then a a white state and that's really started to drive partisan polarization is that you we have a discourse about who is allowed to vote and whose vote whose vote is legitimate. And it's not obvious how you get out of that once people have bought into the notion that something like vote by mail or eliminating voter ID restrictions opens the system up to this, you know, masses of illegitimate voting. And, you know, in the absence of any evidence that that's the case, it's interesting,
2: one of the um, just to complicate things a little bit further in the 19th century, several uh, there, there were states that actually let people who weren't citizens vote, there are states that had no citizenship requirement whatsoever. On voting,
1: I think there's still a couple of localities yeah. that do that.
2: And and I think, though, what we're seeing, though, is that as the national government gets involved for very real and very legitimate reasons, as you say, Julia, and this is the kind of foreshadow that the kind of discussion we'll have on the effect of all of these reforms, what happens is that it changes the nature of our of our mass political parties and you begin to see particularly with the progressive uh reforms at the beginning of the 20th century things like the secret ballot the standardized ballots things like that you begin to see turnout drop and it's very interesting and and what and what intrigues me is the fact that we have all of these different like motor voter reforms vote by mail all of these other things and they don't actually result in the long term in boosting that participation back to the 19th century level because they the parties aren't organized in the way they used to be. And, and we now typically see partisanship as a bad thing in elections, not, not something that helps to boost uh, turnout overall. But that, that's kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But it is an interesting wrinkle and in something that I think complicates the way we typically think about solving these problems
1: yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the, we're now in this sort of challenging situation where I think our our norms about politics require us to have nonpartisan bureaucratized election administration, um, usually local, but you know that could be that's not always the case. And but at the same time, as you point out, the kind of political reality is that you need partisanship and you need robust parties to actually foster political participation. So how to strike that balance is yeah, really. in
2: just a, really in a brief founded. history on that, I know Leap wants to jump in here, but I want to before that, you know, if you look at the impact of parties on elections and voter turnout in 1824, where we don't have this new mass party that Van Buren, Martin Van Buren builds for Andrew Jackson, turnout's approximately 26, 27 percent. 1828, it's you only have one party, the Democratic Party, and it's at 56.3% more or less. By 1840, with Democrats and the Whigs competing very aggressively at the local level and the state level to turn out people to vote so they can win elections, parties actually doing partisan things, you get over 78% and turnout stays at those astronomical levels through the end of the 19th century. And it's only until we begin to say parties, you can't play the types of roles you used to play in part in politics for very good reasons, I should add, um, that we begin to see that drop. And we've never been able to get back to that level with this nonpartisan approach to to, to election administration.
0: Yeah, so much here, so much here. Um, I, I really wanna emphasize and echo the point that James made a little earlier on about the extent to which election administration and electoral rules have always been a partisan struggle in the U.S. uh, And also an urban-rural struggle. Uh, There's been constant issues of malapportionment, of districting, of who can vote. So it's nothing new to have a struggle over voting. In fact, I I can't think of every moment in U.S. history, voting itself has been a contested issue uh and parties have been jockeying and they've been using the legislatures and the, the governorships and and national politics to affect who votes and you know not just parties but also different different groups the the civil rights issues in the 60s were you know cut across parties and the one person one vote cases that that led up to the equal districting size requirement you know also were cut across parties in many respects Th- that that's nothing new um, you know, I think the other question here is to the extent to, you know, to which the, this, as Julia talking about, this sort of new nationalization of American politics makes all these fights even more uh, difficult because now, you know, we know that power in Washington is going to really hinge on a handful of key swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Uh, and these are the purple states where the legislature is often Republican. I think in all those states, the legislature is Republican. The governorship is Democratic. And you know, there there is this perception whether, you know, it doesn't seem to be borne out, but that Democrats wanna make it wanna expand voting uh, and Republicans wanna make it harder to vote. And it, it's become this reified proposition and, and it just undermines, I think it under, really undermines the legitimacy of close national elections. But the thing that I'm struggling with is, you know, as, as James points out, you know, this is something that's been the case and certainly it's been a political issue from from day one. Gerrymandering goes back to uh, the, the efforts by the Virginia legislature to try to get James Madison out of a district. It's Henry uh, Mandering. The first, first... Patrick Henry. Yes. Henry yes, Mandering. Henry, Henry Mandering, Mandarin should be called. Uh, and yet something feels particularly fraught about this time, and maybe it's the, the highly nationalized, hyper-partisan politics on top of the longstanding struggles uh, and just this this the sense that, that that everything is all or nothing and you know uh, uh, it hinges on a few thousand votes here a few thousand votes there and we just have a very very different country. I think the I think that's right I think the reaction to
2: The proposition or the possibility, I should say, that the election in November could be postponed, I think, is very illustrative of your point, Lee, but maybe not in a way that you intended. Uh, The the 20th Amendment and the 22nd Amendment of the Constitution, when the 22nd Amendment obviously limiting the president to two terms, the 20th Amendment moving the dates for when Congress must meet and for when the new president uh, takes the oath of office and begins a new term. Uh, those amendments and the Constitution itself limit how long the election in November could be postponed for. And we're talking a couple of weeks here. And I'm not an advocate of postponing the election. I don't think we should postpone the election in November. I think several reforms, particularly mail in voting and other things, should be enough to make us, um, help us be able to vote safely. With that being said, though, I'm not sure that postponing an election for four weeks is the is basically the same thing as we're now descended into tyranny but but I think the reaction to the proposition that the election could in fact be postponed for three and a half weeks uh, being you know something uh, akin to tyranny in this country is is I think very illustrative of the point that you're making which is we are super sensitive to even the slightest possible changes in anything about how we conduct our politics. And I think a lot of what we hope to do in this podcast is to ask questions about how we think about these things and how we react to these things, because I think they're all related. And, and it turns out that it, it, as the stakes of these elections are, are, are higher and higher, the actual things that the people do in places like Congress, where we're voting for people in these elections are going lower and lower, which is yeah. another interesting contradiction.
1: I, can I weigh in about a, um, a sort of pandemic-specific observation? I haven't I haven't seen public opinion data on this, so this is a, a speculative observation. But it seems to me that that exact phenomenon that the two of you point out that that people are very sensitive to any change in, in rule or procedure because it seems like you know other other people are going to use that that to screw you over is it, a very strong perception, right? That there can be no rule changes for rule change sake and that that's not that's not paranoid necessarily right that that is probably accurate to the tenor of politics but that the pandemic and the vulnerability that people feel seem to have the potential to heighten that and again that's something where i think we'll probably know more in november about exactly how this how the new circumstances are are shaping people's process attitudes but it seems to me that that's, you know, people really feel very vulnerable and I think of this sentiment and this idea in the first place in which people are very sensitive to rule to rule changes and very sensitive to the idea that someone else might get power over them is rooted not only in partisan polarization but in economic inequality and insecurity and lack of, of workplace democracy and I, I think that that is only going to to get that sense is only going to get deeper. And on the one hand that is a real challenge for for changing the way that we do elections in order to hold November's election in a safe and hopefully non chaotic way. But I also want to note that I think this is not, this is not the worst possibility, right? I think that the idea that people are sensitive to the ways in which rule changes might affect them, and they're sensitive to, they're sensitive to the exercise of authority is actually not bad. I mean, if you think back to other emergency responses and the kinds of responses and civil liberties curtailing that sometimes happen in, in wartime. It seems to me that people being, being attentive to the impact of rule changes and sort of more, you know, being more sensitive to that and less willing to cede authority and trust in government, that to me seems like a not wholly negative development. It just needs to be harnessed and very carefully and through very careful communication about, you know, what election rules mean. So that's a little a field of our election point. But I just I just want to point that out as, you know, more more trust in government, I don't think is always is always great, especially in emergency situations.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And to bring this to bring this to our uh, back to our to our question here, though, is that I think the, the broader meta theme, though, of that I constantly emphasize of people, we are shifting more and more of our expectations to elections and we expect elections to settle our problems and our disputes and our disagreements. And we don't use the infrastructure that exists in between elections that that actually give the elections meaning to actually do so. And I think that actually heightens, heightens the, 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 the importance of elections and it it we it gives us it makes us expect more of them than they can deliver and then you get into situations that i think are extraordinarily common sense like vote by mail and especially during a pandemic but because we have loaded so much onto these elections that becomes something that's just completely unacceptable to somebody because they think that it may tilt the playing field away from what they want to have happened and I think that's a big problem, that I think speaks to how we're doing politics more broadly in this country than just in our elections.
0: Well, let, let me speak to the public uh, opinion data. Um, and th- there's there are some broad trends here. One is the sense that which uh, which people feel that the country's vote is uh, is legitimate. That people feel that that uh, the the overall process is is legitimate, and that's down to about twenty percent. Uh, of people feel that the country's vote is being counted fairly. And that's, that's dropped considerably since 2000, uh, between 2000 and 2012, the share of people who thought that the country's vote was counted fairly plunged from about 50% to 20%. And a lot of that shift has been among Republicans. And that's, that's, all, that's from some work by uh, Charles Stewart at, at MIT who's tracked that. Uh, the, the other thing to note is, and, and there, there have been a number of surveys uh, that show that uh, Democrats ha- overwhelmingly think that there's massive voter suppression, uh, and Republicans overwhelmingly think that there's massive voter fraud. Uh, and uh, Rick Hassan, uh law professor, has a book out called uh, Election." Ele- I think it's called "Election Meltdown." Uh, you know and he's been he's been tracking this to the extent to which both sides feel that the elections are are illegitimate so we are in this moment of as Julia's talking about and James both of you have been talking about this heightened sensitivity that the even the the slightest change might help the other side and that I think has a lot to do with the razor thin margins of our elections the intense uh, hyper partisanship uh, in the sense that if the other side wins it would be a total disaster and just a fundamental distrust of the other side Side, thinking that that the only way that they can win is by rigging the rules, by cheating, not by uh, any any legitimate process, in a sense that the other side is illegitimate. So I think all these things swirl on themselves to create this this really toxic environment uh, in our in our and politics. And the irony right is, now. it doesn't really matter who wins because nothing changes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's well.
2: The, I mean, gra- granted, there are important changes, but in two thousand years, when you know someone finds our version of Livy. I'm not sure that they're going to see the same stark differences from an election to election. We go from unified Republican control, unified Democratic control and things typically overall, more broadly speaking, look like they're going just as dissatisfactory to everybody involved as possible. So I think that really that that contradiction with the importance of elections. And then the and the outcome of elections as to what happens in between them, that contradiction really, I think, deserves more focus and more attention by us and by others. And, you know, in the weeks and months and years ahead, because that, I think, speaks to the dysfunction in our politics right now.
1: I mean, I think we could do a whole other podcast about what what changes between elections. That would actually be, um, I think, a cool topic. Um, also, can we do one on the 20th Amendment? I feel like the 20th Amendment gets neglected. Yes, so, I, read,
2: I read a paper on the 20th Amendment. Count me in.
1: You read the paper on wow, the 20th right. Amendment. Wow, yeah. that's, that's... So for our readers, the 20th Amendment moves the presidential inauguration from uh, March 3rd to January 20th. So, okay. I mean, to me, this whole thing seems like it seems really challenging to figure out how this would happen between now and November. But I also think a theme that sort of emerged from what we have what we've said, and particularly what, what Lee was just saying about perceptions of the political environment is, you know, to what degree is this an administrative and capacity, and I'm going to say it again, infrastructure problem? And to what degree is this a problem of, of communication of political will? Uh, I mean, one thing we do know about public opinion is that, it, you know, elite, elite messaging matters. And people take their cues from the partisan elites that they they look to to frame developments. And that, partisanship around the perception of the coronavirus crisis itself has um that the gap has shrunk right we've, we've seen a little bit of change in that as um, republican elites have signaled to their constituents that this that the crisis is real and serious so is there potential there for progress if there could be a, a coalition of um of people in that in the position to message that could. I'll get on board. Like to what degree is this a political will and perception problem?
2: And I would also add to that, to what degree is this a, a law problem? And I think a lot of the pro- a lot of the issues that you've raised, Julia, that, that you've raised, Lee, a lot of these questions and concerns typically would be adjudicated and fought over and debated between the parties, between nonpartisans, whoever, in in the actual arenas where we make law in this nation. And I think that the fact that we're expecting ele- people who administer elections to to basically, you know, change the law on how those elections ought to run. It really forecloses our ability to have these big debates over in the states over what our election laws should be, and I think that's a really important point that we often uh, miss in this debate.
0: So I think we should try to try to wrap it up now. I think we we've really unearthed a, a complex welter of politics and administration uh, and you know I I, I for one uh, am feeling quite pessimistic uh, and and confused as to what we should expect in November how we should think about it I uh, and you know i think uh, to julia's point that a lot of this is messaging by elites and i think you know w- w- we are petted for uh, yet another piper partisan election uh you know i think think this will be particularly ugly as both sides try to blame the other for the coronavirus and the economic downturn uh, and we turn against china and and uh, you know, this is just i just really am I'm anxious about the the tone of this election on top of this uh, complex uh, issue of of who gets to to vote by mail and who doesn't and the health issues. Ugh, this is this is really going to be just really going to be ugly. So I I mean I, I don't even know where to where where to where to try to conclude here. I mean is it is does anybody have any optimism about how how things will go this year? I'm optimistic. I, i'm always optimistic i think that if people ask
2: questions about the claims that their their parties their their election officials the candidates and elections that they're voting in if they ask questions about their claims and what they're saying they'll quickly find that those that this in my opinion the, a lot of the opposition we have is is not even passive aggressive it's kind of like a show and if you poke it a little bit it's remarkable how f- quickly things just kind of fall apart and it turns out these claims aren't very well founded and it's that's what gives me optimism is that we're not facing these irreconcilable zero-sum conflicts right now. We're facing a bunch of theater because we want to avoid actually debating issues that aren't zero-sum, debating issues that are very complicated that don't have clear questions one way or the other. And that takes a lot of hard work and yes, that you know, I guess may give you reasons not to be optimistic, but I would be a lot more pessimistic if I thought the challenges we faced right now really were based on a zero-sum conflict between two polarized parties in which there was no overlap. And it was basically a struggle for supremacy in this country. And I don't see that. I think politics works. And I think we just need more participation. We got to be safe about it. We got to be healthy. We can't not touch our face when we go to the polling place. But at the end of the day, I think that more participation in politics is the answer. And as long as we have the answer, I've got optimism.
1: One day on this podcast, I think we'll have an episode where we where I don't end up sort of like being wishy washy in between the two of you. But today is not that day. Um, I I, I, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic. And it's very hard to feel optimistic in Wisconsin right now, given the way in which some political actors have approached the election and given, you know, given the, the tenor of the discourse coming out of and specifically out of the Republicans in the state legislature um, about the importance of the election has been really challenging to reconcile any optimism with what's what's happened here. At the same time, I think I agree with James to some degree that there are some shared values. And I think that this is a situation in which we probably are not going to see um, a shift from the president, although that I obviously could be wrong, um, but we we might see a shift from some other um, Republican office holders, and we might also see different kinds of discourse from Democratic office holders that really emphasize the importance of elections as as a you know not the thing that does everything in our democracy, but a cornerstone cornerstone right, a really critical piece of that, and I think deep down. Most people in this country believe that. And even if they're worried that their side will lose or that a, a given reform will be bad for them or bad for their team, that you know the, the politics without elections, without elections in which people have access to vote that aren't chaotic, that don't compromise public health, people really will, will come around to the notion that that's, that's critical, that's pretty basic. And the thing that I want to, I think, emphasize is that while these problems go very deep, um, and are linked to a lot of st- structural problems, of like polarization, to the decentralized way we we run elections, to the sort of lurching nationalization of politics. That people have choices, and, and people in the mass electorate have choices, and people in a position to to really you know share messages and frame what happens have choices. And this is a critical period in which not only does is it necessary to invest in. And the kinds of structures that are needed to do some kind of uh, more widespread vote by mail, but also to to make choices about what the politics of that are and whether whether one goes forward and makes a partisan fight about it or goes forward and says, look, this is this is a critical issue. This is as critical as providing, you know, providing support for um, for essential workers at this time or providing economic support or the kinds of of. You know, supports that we've provided for people in the past, you know, 9-11 first responders, things like that. This is a critical cornerstone of taking care of everybody in our democracy. And that's a choice that elites, that people in, in media, that people in politics can make. And that, I think, is a really critical thing to remember in crisis politics, is is that even as you feel like you're losing control of a lot of things, when it, when it comes to politics, we do have We do have decisions that we can make.
0: Maybe that's the optimistic point is that we're going to have a big conversation about how we do elections and we'll have a lot of fights about this. And maybe some of those fights will be even a little productive. Uh, And because we have to fight about these issues because they're coming at us. Uh, and they are highly contested. And these are issues that we can't push to the side, but we have to confront. So maybe politics will triumph at the end. Here's hoping. So I think that concludes our episode. And uh, I think this was a a really fascinating discussion. And uh, I I look forward to digging into some of the topics that, that we teased as future episodes with you all. Stay safe, everybody.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group,